Welcome tonight to Bethany. Thanks for joining us on a beautiful day. And at the end of the day, uh, as we study this evening the life of Mary Magdalene, I ask you to join me in prayer as we begin. Father, we'd like to thank you for not only the day, but uh, the restorative nature of Sabbath and new life and new seasons. We see your faithful sustenance of the earth as a picture of your faithful sustenance in our lives. And I pray now, Father, that uh, we'd be granted by your grace the capacity to hear your voice in the text this evening and that your spirit would teach us and that we would be shaped uh, to be followers, people who represent your heart. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we follow you, praying in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Mary Magdalene is our consideration this evening. And then next week, the unnamed woman is who we study, and you won't know her name even at the end of the sermon next week because she's unnamed. However, that's okay. There's a great deal there for us to learn. But tonight, as we continue in the series, Women in the Bible, Mary represents for us something significant. She is more than anyone a devoted follower of Christ, and she follows, and following is vital. Really, it's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Christ. When my wife and I ran... uh, ministry in the mountains years ago, we would take people out on backpacking trips. And we would put a uh, guide in the front and a guide in the back. And then all the guests are in between, the front and back guide. And all the guests have to do is stay between the two guides and all will go well. However, I'm confessing to you in this moment, we actually lost a student one time. And you think to yourself, how is that even possible to lose somebody? You have a guide in the front and a guide in the back. Here's how. There were like seven or eight students, and one of them in the middle left the trail. And none of the students said anything. They, they thought to themselves, oh, maybe he's relieving himself in the forest or something like that. All will be well. And they never said anything. We continued to hike for another 45 minutes. And then we set up camp, and as soon as we get there, someone says, oh, uh, so-and-so has the poles for our tent. Where is so-and-so? It's the first time any of us noticed that he was, it's like a home alone story in the wilderness, right? Where is he? He's missing. So we were were on the Pacific Crest Trail and then we had come to this kind of Y, basically, and we had gone off to go up onto a little plateau and camp. So the trail he was on was the Pacific Crest Trail. He would have hiked to Canada. Right? He's heading north. And so I put on my runners and went and eventually found it. But it took a few hours, literally, and we were terrified. Right? And, and so from then on, we made a new rule, right, uh, of like, hey, always, wherever you are in the group, just follow the person right in front of you. Don't, don't even worry about the guides. Just follow the footsteps of the person right in front of you. Because following is vital if you're gonna get to the destination. And that seems like a silly story at a level. However, in Luke chapter 18, verse eight, Jesus is referring to his return, right? His his kind of second coming, as we call it. And it says here, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? What a silly question. Of course Jesus will find faith on the earth. We're here tonight, right? We're we're singing, we're worshiping. Isn't Isn't this what Jesus is after? Well, actually, no. Jesus didn't ask, when the Son of Man returns, will he find worship services? Will he find preaching? Will he find Bible studies? Will he find activism? Will, he find, will, will Jesus find seminaries and, and podcasts 
and radios and books and bookstores and libraries and theological debates and political activism and theological activism and Christians throwing Bible grenades at one, one another, dividing. You find all of that, but that's not the question on the table. Here's Jesus' question. Will the Son of Man find faith? In other words, will there be people who by faith are fixated on the person of Jesus and following Jesus wherever Jesus leads? Because that's really what it means to be a disciple. And, and so Jesus asks the question, leaves it kind of hanging there. And it's that question in a way that frames what we're talking about tonight. Because if we want to say, I'd like to be a follower, Jesus, what does it look like to be a follower of Christ? No one illustrates and portrays discipleship and following Jesus more clearly anywhere in the Bible, no one than Mary Magdalene, I'm convinced, having studied her this week. She's exemplary in her devotion to following Christ. She's mentioned 14 times in the Gospels, and whenever she's mentioned in a list of women, she's always mentioned first, and that has both literary and historical prominence in, in that the, the authors are trying to say to us, among the women, she's a leader, right? And then there's five times where she's mentioned alone, and the five times that she is mentioned alone are mentioned uh, in connection with both the death and resurrection of Christ. Mary is with Jesus when he dies. Mary is right there when Jesus uh, is resurrected. And uh, Jesus, is the first person that Jesus speaks with post-resurrection is Mary. So uh, she has this complete, utter devotion to the Master, and for that reason, she's a prototype of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, when uh, we read uh, the, what's called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, hey, go into the world, go out into all the world, he says to us, and make disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, really, the word disciple, literally, it means this, a follower of Christ. So go out and, and point people toward a life of following Jesus wholeheartedly without reserve, following Jesus. Great. What does that look like? Mary, that's what it looks like. As we're going to look at Mary this evening, particularly three mark, what I call markers of discipleship or following, because she's prototypical. If you're a disciple, then you identify with these three things. Mary received much from Jesus. Then as a result of receiving, she gave much. And as a result of both receiving and giving, she understood much. So, so she received much, she gave much, she understood much. Those are three things that we consider this evening prototypical and, and kind of woven throughout its application for us. Oh, Mary received much. You need to receive much from Jesus. You already have. You just need to become aware of what you've received. Mary gave much. We're called to give. Mary understood much. We're called to understand and live into that understanding. So those three things. Beginning with this, Mary received much. So if you read uh, Luke chapter 8... Uh, there's a little bit here about Jesus beginning a public ministry. And it says he began going around, I'm reading Luke chapter 8, verse 1. He began going around from one city and village to the other, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And there were 12 with him and also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. And he names the woman, the first woman named, as she is in lists of women, always, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So Mary is known, Mary Magdalene is known as this woman who's been uh, uh, exercised of seven demons. Seven demons have been cast out of her. Uh, now, we're going to talk much more about Mary in a moment, but because of her particular condition, I feel the need to take it just a second here and parenthetically uh, talk about demon possession. She's had seven demons cast out of her. 
And uh, we had, I've had conversations with some of you about this very subject, demon possession, and is it real? Is it, you know, help us understand demonic possession. I would say to you that within uh, the circle of Christ followers is a spectrum, and, and on the two far ends are those who, over here on this one far end who would say, no, you know, when these guys were talking about demon possession, it's because they weren't yet like scientifically enlightened. There's no such thing as demon possession. Demon possession is uh, what we would call today various forms of illness. Like maybe, maybe uh, the presenting symptom would be like epilepsy or like a bipolar kind of a thing or some other presenting issue that's either physiological or psychological or both. But it's not, demon, it's not demonic. It's, it's, uh, it's emotional and, and physiological. There's no such thing as demons, right? That's the kind of theologically far left, kind of liberal view that says, yeah, it's not, there's no demons. And then on the far other side, I've encountered people in particular circles who really believe that everything is, has its, as its root it's something demonic. And so uh, they're forever, you know, praying out the demon, the demon of insomnia and the demon of overeating and the demon of uh, anger or whatever. So those are the extremes. There are no demons. Every problem has a demon behind it. And I would say to you as both your pastor and your friend, of, like avoid those extremes, right? They're both wrong. Because the reality is, people on those sides, those extreme far right and far left, people who are on the sides, what, what happens there is they void people of maturity because now I don't, have to, I don't have to discern anymore. When I'm thinking, what's going on in your life? Uh, it's either not demonic, always, it's never demonic, or, uh, or it is always demonic, and I don't have to pray about it anymore. I just, I just I either cast it even down or give you a pill. It's one or the other. <laughs> in the middle now, though, you need discernment. Because then you're, then you're like this. You know what? We're body, soul, and spirit. And if we're body, soul, and spirit, then uh, uh, we're woven together somewhat mysteriously. And when there's a presenting problem, you know, anger, rage, uh, different, different forms of you know, self-abusive behavior, what's behind it? Well, we're going to have to pray this through. We're going to talk about it. We're going to have to figure it out. But there are times, I will tell you, uh, when it's demonic. Uh, I've shared this story before, and I share it again only because I have limited experience with demonic encounters, but for those who haven't heard it, I'll share it. Uh, we ran this ministry in the mountains, and we had this big chalet, and one night, bam, we heard somebody, we thought they were hitting the house like it was a sledgehammer. And when I went downstairs to investigate, it was a, it was a young woman, about 30 years old, hitting her head against the concrete brick wall. Boom, boom, boom. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> it didn't seem right. And she said in a male voice, we must kill her. Speaking of, so she's possessed with demons. Now, when I was in seminary, I'd, I'd taken a missions class and the professor was a missionary to Africa and just at a kind of a throwaway moment in one class, he talked about uh, casting a demon out of a guy in Africa. And then he told us how he did it, right? And so I'll never forget, I took notes. You said, when you encounter a demon, in the name of Jesus, whose blood is my authority, come out. And so I'm taking notes, in the name of Jesus, whose blood, out, you know, <laughs> big capital letters, out. 
We'll never forget. It's like a first aid class. CPR. Okay, this is what you do. This is what you do. Okay. And then now here, this woman is in front of me. So, in the name of Jesus, whose blood is my authority, come out. And she falls on the ground. And then she opens her eyes and she says, do you have any aspirin? I have a headache. And I said, I'll bet you have a headache. Do you know what you're just doing? No, what? And I, I said, you're banging your head against the wall. Oh, she says, yeah, well, let me, I forgot to tell you about that. Uh, she'd come as a guest and uh, she'd grown up in the satanic church and was involved in all kinds of rituals uh, and abusive behavior and she'd been sexually abused and a very, very dark, dark history. And this was the first time, not the last time that we had these kind of encounters. She lived with us for six weeks. Ama- amazing. So, there are times when it's demonic and, and no pill solves that. Do you understand? No exercise program solves that. On the other hand, when people are saying to me, man, look at these wild mood swings, like the first line of defense is not, in the name of Jesus, you know, that's not it. The first line of defense is, hey, what are you eating? Oh, you know, fried Twinkies and Mountain Dew for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, yeah, how about this? Grow up, eat some broccoli, right? Like, you'll be better. It's not, in other words, it's not, don't spiritualize everything, but also what? Don't, don't make everything physiological. Why? Because you're not all spirit, you're not all body. So, th- so this is, I mean, this woman has been profoundly delivered of spiritual darkness by Jesus. And because of that, she is indebted to Jesus and eternally grateful. So the, the larger point for the moment, all of that was parenthetical about demon possession. Not the main point tonight, but free. You're welcome. <laughs> The larger point in the moment is this. Mary knew she'd been set free. I'm just going to say every person who's a devoted disciple of Jesus can look back on the trajectory of their life and say, you know what? God has delivered me. I, I can look back on my life and I see the hand of God. Oh, look what God did in the midst of cancer. Look what God did in the midst of, of the loss of a, of a parent or the loss of a spouse. Look what God did in the midst of uh, sexual abuse or infidelity or unemployment or foreclosure. Look what God has done. And there's a sense of gratitude because as we look retrospectively, we say, God was in it, man. And God was, God was bringing us along the way and God has brought deliverance and healing and transformation transformation, and I am grateful. That's Peter delivered from his own self-centeredness, from his own awareness of his own sin. That's Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was hated and corrupt and, 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 and enjoying the hospitality of Jesus. He was transformed. That's Paul who calls himself the chief of sinners. That's the woman at the well with five failed marriages. That's the woman caught in adultery where there's all these guys standing around with rocks ready to kill her. Every one of these people, they were profoundly delivered and that deliverance leads to gratitude. And so hear this because it's kind of a principle. The more obvious your need for deliverance, the more obvious your recovery. The more obvious your recovery, the more grateful you are. The more grateful you are, the more your priorities are transformed because the more deeply you want to follow Jesus out of gratitude. And, you know, one of the persons that kind of embodies that trajectory of movement from deliverance to gratitude and service is my friend Howard. I'm going to ask Howard if you come up here now. Howard as usually here in the morning service, but I want to share his story with you a little bit. How long have you been coming to Bethany, by the way? A little over three years. A little over three years. So I, uh, Howard came, and the first Sunday, the first Sunday Howard's here, 
uh, he'd, God had been working his life because you were in the midst of recovery from fatal, basically, bladder cancer. And your words, God is tapping on the shoulder. Anyway, he ends up here. First sermon I preach. I mean, you'd never been to church, right? Ever. And, and so he walks in the door, and he, he says, your talk was so good. Can I use your notes uh, at Rotary Club on Sunday? Don't you love that? I was like, yeah, man. Knock yourself out. That's awesome. So, he, so he, that was good. And then uh, shortly after that, you took your first communion, and you, you were coming up to receive communion, and I was sitting right there, and you looked at me, and you said, this is a moment. And it was so powerful for me. It was a gift to me to see how God was working in your life. And then you, then you came to Christ and then you're baptized here with us. And then you've also started this uh, foundation uh, for uh, uh, research for treatment of bladder cancer. And all, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, d- delivered from much, loves much, devoted much, serving much. So anything you want to add? I mean, I've kind of told your story for you, but I'm, I'm very, I'm kind of interested in your perspective on all of that because it's been quite a journey for you. Well, right around the period of time where I got diagnosed about a couple of months before, I started feeling something kind of following me around and literally tapping me on the shoulder. And uh, I'm glad that I followed those taps. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be here today if I didn't. That's right. Um, and those taps are really God at work? And... It, was, it was movement along to get things done that I typically wouldn't have, have done. And small little gestures, but they, each one of them worked. And then they culminated in uh, finding out that I had bladder cancer and getting cured and uh, be able to give back and now be able to help others not go through what I went through. And I think because of what you've gone through and because of your new life in Christ, God has given you a tremendous ministry to be the presence of Christ both with your foundation and you work downtown, so with your employees, you have a management position, and uh, now you have a significant role in the Rotary this year as well, Uh, and uh, in all these places, you're shining as the light of Christ, and it all comes back to how God has moved you from the bottom in the valley through this deliverance into into this devotion. I'd like us to just thank God through applause for what God has done in your life. Thank you so much, Howard. You're a gift to our community. So that's an ex- how it's an example of this kind of principle of uh, receiving much, right? And, and uh, I, I think in, sometimes in contrast to those kind of stories, many of us know people who grew up in the church, and uh, I sometimes wonder when we, I raise my children in the church, I sometimes wonder if I'm not accidentally teaching my kids to be self-righteous Pharisees rather than disciples. Does that make sense? Because if all I'm doing is teaching my, my, my children to quote-unquote be good and to, and to quote-unquote know the right answers, then I'm not showing the profound power of the gospel to deliver. And I think this profound sense of deliverance is absolutely critical for us to become disciples, that we all have this sense at the very core of our being, we have this sense of gratitude. Look what God has done. And we want to teach, we want to teach each other to, to share these stories. This is how God has been moving in my life. And this is really what fellowship is all about. And this makes the gratitude of receiving the work of God in our lives exponentially grow when we share our stories with one another. This is why it's so important that you not simply listen to podcasts when you're jogging and call that your spiritual feeding. It's the life in the community and receiving stories from one another of deliverance, just like Howard's story, 
that, that creates in us a sense, oh yes, God is at work, we've received much. In my own life, the, the death of my dad and the subsequent loneliness and depression and then God kind of plucking me out of that makes me forever grateful, forever grateful. Uh, I would not be where I am today, to quote Howard, had I not listened to the tap on the shoulder. And so this is all of us. God wants to write a story. He doesn't just want to punch your ticket so you get to go to heaven. He wants to write a story of transformation. You have received much. That's the first thing. Now, because Mary's received much, she gives much. In particular, Mary gives in three ways. She supports Jesus financially. She remains with Jesus when others disappear. And she watches and waits at the, at the tomb. Those are three significant things. For, so first of all, Mary supports Jesus financially. In this passage I read in Luke chapter 8, uh, Mary is named as one who is traveling with Jesus along with several other women. And these other women were told, were told about these other women. They were, quote, contributing to their support, to the support of the disciples out of their private means. And so there's, these, there's this group of women and they're giving out of their own abundance to support Jesus' itinerant preaching ministry. If you ever wondered, like, how was Jesus provided for? He didn't have a salary. These women were providing uh, Jesus' means. It's an amazing story. And I think this is also significant because this giving is a response of gratitude. It's a heart overflowing. And out of gratitude, now I'm going to give and support. And of course, all of us remember call to that same kind of support. If you've received much, right, here's Jesus, freely you've received, what? Freely give. So we're called to give. And, and in Mary's case, the giving is the overflow of the heart. Like there's a heart gratitude and at least the giving. Now here, there's a very important principle I just want to articulate before we move on. And that's that uh, while a full heart can lead to giving, it's also true in the Bible that giving can lead to a full heart. In other words, you may, you may be like this, well, I'm not, I'm not grateful, so I'm not going to give. <laughs> and I would say, if you begin to give, that, cha- that actually changes your heart. And, and I know this because Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, hey, nobody can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Either love one and hate the other or serve one and be devoted or hate the one and be devoted to the other. And then he, he's very explicit. You can't serve God and money. He just says you can't do it. So uh, the very next statement from Jesus where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. So when you put your money down, as soon as you put your money on something, now you're invested in that. So when I begin to give, right, and invest in the work of God or invest in a particular life, as soon as I'm invested financially, my heart follows my money. Isn't that interesting? Totally true. Anyone in the room who invests, like if you invest financially in stock, if you buy stock in a company, then suddenly you're very interested in that, in that company. I'm not big into investing, but I, I own a little bit of uh, that company called Square. Do you guys know of it? Like if you go to a coffee shop and, and there's a little thing there that takes your credit card, that's the company Square. So every time I go into a coffee shop and I see that, I'm like, I'll buy more. <laughs> buy? That's my stock, right? And so I'll, someday I'll get a dividend maybe if I buy enough stuff because now my, like I'm invested, do you see? And so when we talk about money around here, 
One of the reasons we talk about money is because I don't want you to miss out on a transformed heart because we're transformed by the giving. Where you put your money, that's where your heart goes. So, so this, is, this is Mary. She's supporting work financially. And she's giving also by remaining when everybody else runs away. The story uh, regarding this is in Matthew chapter 26. So I'll just take you there for just a moment. Uh, Jesus is a, he's arrested Matthew 26, verse 47. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's speaking. And uh, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, comes up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So, like, the religious leaders have now uh, conspired with some soldiers. They're going to they're arrest Jesus. And these soldiers come with swords and clubs, a large crowd with swords and clubs, uh, Judas kisses Jesus, and then it says they seized him. And then verse 51, one of those that was with Jesus, and we know from other gospels it was Peter, uh, he drew out his sword, and he starts swinging, and he cuts the ear off of one of these guys, right? And it's an amazing story. Jesus just says, hey, wait a minute. And then he stops, he picks, the, picks up this guy's ear, and he heals him. And he kind of rebukes Peter, put your sword away, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then, and then they take Jesus away. And when, listen, when they take Jesus away, this is what you read, it's significant. It says, verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Everybody's gone. Oh, well, except Mary, who follows him to the cross, as with him while he's dying on the cross, there's three, Mary and Mary and Mary <laughs> at the cross, faithful. So here's Peter and all the disciples. I mean, think about it. They were with Jesus three years. They saw him, they saw him raise the dead. They, they saw him heal the sick. They saw him cast out demons. They saw miracles performed. They saw the crowds gather and swell and shout Hosanna. They, they, knew, they watched him wash... His, their feet. They knew this. Jesus, the real deal. They knew it. It's, listen, the problem for the disciples is not a knowledge problem. Any more than knowledge is your problem. It's not your, you don't need more knowledge. No, the problem is a knowledge. They knew that Jesus was the real deal. They knew it. And they left anyway. Why? This is why. Embedded in them is kind of a contract mentality that says, oh, you know, I'll follow Jesus if Jesus will do such and such for me. If, do you know what I mean by that? If then. If, if Jesus will make me famous, I'll follow him. If Jesus will make me healthy, I'll follow him. If, if, if rich, I'm in. If married, I'm in. If healthy kids, I'm in. But then my child got cancer, I'm done. My dad died, I'm done. My wife was unfaithful, I'm done. I lost my job, I'm done. I was arrested for following Jesus, I'm out of here. That's a contract mentality. And in such a mentality, you're, like, you're not following Jesus You've, you're in a transaction with an ideology for benefits. And, and I'll just say, that's religion, but that's not discipleship. Discipleship is not contractual. I will follow you, Jesus, if you do these things for me. No. In fact, Matthew 13, Jesus says, hey, here's what happens. The, the guy goes out, the farmer, he sows some seed, and some of the seed falls in rocky soil, and it germinates, and it looks like it's going to grow, and it looks like the real deal, just like the real plants. They both begin to grow, but this one dies. Why? Well, we're told in the text why. Persecution and trouble 
caused these people to what? Quote, immediately uh, leave. <laughs> yeah, I'll follow Jesus when it's convenient. I'll follow Jesus when there's benefits. I'll follow Jesus if it leads to upward mobility and health and wealth and all that stuff. But otherwise, thanks, I'm on my own. And I'll just say to you, that, I mean, that's not discipleship. Because that contractual relationship isn't found in the Bible anywhere as representing the character of God. God isn't into contracts. God's into covenants. And a co listen, a contractual relationship is if then, but a covenant relationship is what? God saying to you, I will. <laughs> Eve and Adam, they blow it. Here's God. I will make a plan. Genesis chapter 3. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you. I will make your name great. Your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Even Jacob, I mean, he's lied, he's cheated, he's stolen, his brother wants to kill him, he's on the run, he falls asleep in the desert, and the God who, to whom he has lied meets him in the desert, and here's God in Genesis 28. I will bless you, I will keep you, I will bring you back to this land, I will make your name great. Why? Because Jacob was never about your performance. I am inexorably, infinitely, unconditionally for you. Man, if we believed that, we'd follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. But we don't believe it often. We're like this, yeah, yeah, whatever. I, uh, I want a better job or I'm done with Jesus. So we have to understand here that discipleship is made visible when we live into the reciprocity of a covenant relationship and we say to Jesus, Jesus, yeah, I will follow you. I will follow you anywhere. <laughs> Because that's what it means to be a disciple. Oh, uh, covenant language, by the way, is in the marriage contract. Because it's not a contract, it's a covenant. So when people are standing up here, they're not articulating a contract. What are they articulating? It's a covenant. And the language is profound, man. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, until we're parted by death, and I've done so many weddings now that when the couple is doing this, I'm thinking in my mind, you guys have no idea what you're saying right now because you don't have any clue. It, you are clueless. Regarding the future, and it's not pejorative. You can't possibly know. You can't, there's no way to know. Skiing with a friend yesterday, I learned about a, a story of some folks who, uh, in, within the marriage, somebody had a stroke. And, and, and the other spouse cared for them for... Four years, day in and day out. Never, never, left their, never left their side. Because this one spouse alone knew when, when the stroke victim was at risk of choking. Never left their side. Four, I, yeah, who does that? I'll tell you who. Uh, covenant people. <laughs> and I'll tell you who not, contract people. And we live in a contract world. So often in, in families, there's a health issue, the marriage implodes. Financial issue, the marriage implodes. It's contract. God is calling us to covenant language because God is a covenant God. God has made a covenant with us and his desires that we follow him completely. So she, she remains with Jesus right there at the cross until his last breath, Mary's there. And then she, she even remains with him, so she supports him, she remains with another sled, and then she, she remains with him by following him to his tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, 
has bought a tomb for Jesus, asked for the body, takes it down, buries him, and then Mary and the other women, Luke 23, 56, returned and prepared spices and perfumes to anoint his body, and they went to the tomb. That was on Friday. Saturday they rested because it was the Sabbath. Sunday they're back at the tomb before the sun is up to be with Jesus. That's covenant commitment. Mary's life was bound up in the life of Christ, watch this, so that his need became her need. His rejection became her rejection. His suffering became her suffering. And do you know how this applies to us? Uh, well, Jesus says that our compassion toward hunger and nakedness and imprisonment and marginalization and suffering, the way that we treat people who can't care for themselves, that is tangible evidence of discipleship. Jesus said it in Matthew 25. He said, at the end of the ages, people will come to me and I'll say, hey, enter into the kingdom, you who have inherited the kingdom. Why? Because I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you welcomed me. Look, you did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And then Jesus says, they will say, Jesus, we never saw you naked. We never saw you hungry. And of course, many of you know the, the Jesus punchline. Yeah, but if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. <laughs> because when the poor and the sick and, 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 and the homeless and the, and the people who are dying of uh, incurable diseases and the, and the immigrant and the orphan and the widow, when those who have no voice are met by us and we close our hands, we are no longer representing Christ. But he, those people are Christ to us. And we're called like Mary to live in solidarity with those particular people. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. And th it's actually those, th those people in need who in their need look most like Jesus. How do I know? Well, Jesus had no place to lay his head. He had no power. He had no wealth. The, the historians of the day don't even mention him. Josephus, the most famous historian, doesn't even mention Jesus from the first century. Isaiah said he was nothing special to look at. But Mary saw something and stayed with him when everyone else left. For me, anyway, right, three, kind of three things. Mary received much, gave much, understood much. For me, uh, most convicting truth that I've discovered in this text. Do I really believe that uh, Jesus is showing up in the, in the face of the other who's in need? Am I really willing to be inconvenienced? The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. And, and disciples... Stick with Jesus, and Jesus is still showing up, inviting compassion, showing up in, in the face of the other in their moment of need. And here's the last thing. Mary understood much. Uh, she understood the reality of the resurrection. In John 20, 17, when Jesus is waiting at the tomb, uh, she sa uh, Jesus says to her, John 20, 17, go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend. So Mary, according to Luke 24, Mary goes and says to the disciples, Jesus is risen from the dead. The disciples are locked in a room, they're terrified. And then we read, the words appeared as nonsense to them. And of course they would. I mean, she had encountered Jesus alive after being dead three days and people don't rise from the dead after being dead three days. And, and, and so... Ultimately, the disciples would also have this encounter, also believe, but she was first, and not only first, she was charged 
uh, with being the, the prophetic voice to tell the disciples the truth that death had been conquered. And when she says that, look, Jesus ascended, it, it means a lot more than a, you, we think it means at first glance. When, when Jesus ascended, we, we know that his ascension was the beginning of an entire new age, an entirely new age in which there is, he would never die again. Lazarus ascended and he died again. When Jesus rose from the dead, that's it. He's ne- he has never died since then, 2,000 years ago. He entered into what is called eternal life or, or even literally translated in some places, you call life for the ages. Jesus is on a different plane now and he's the first, but we're there with him. That's the thing. And so there's this cycle, right? You're born, you live, you die. And then in the midst of that, maybe you create some other life that is born and lives and dies. Life, death, life, death, life, death. It's that circle of life thing from the Lion King and that's the way the world works. And then along comes Jesus and when he rises from the dead, uh, what Mary's saying is there's a whole, the, the whole cosmos is different now. We need never fear death because we will live forever. Yes, our bodies will die, but they will be resurrected just like Jesus and glorified just like Jesus. And, and so without a fear of death, we're free to love, free to serve, free to give, free to follow. It's a new world. I've seen the Lord. That's what she said. And it's remarkable to me. She knew the reality of the resurrection and all that it meant. And she knew her new identity because Jesus said in John 20, 11, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That's crazy language. Hebrews 2.11 explains it for us. It's kind of this radical inclusion in a new family because Hebrews 2 says this, both he who sanctifies, that's uh, Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's us, listen, are one. For which reason he, God, is not ashamed to call them, that's us, family. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes this, this familial relationship with God, oh yeah, God is my father. Sometimes we think of it this way. Uh, Jesus paid the price for our sins and so now you have this kind of not guilty thing stamped on all your sins and so now you get to be in the family by virtue of what Christ did but you remain fundamentally unchanged. No, 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 no. Like that stamp, Romans 5, that's your justification. Great, you're justified. Okay, God doesn't... You're not, not going to pay for your sin anymore. I get that. It's all good. No. Uh, we're justified by his death. But Romans 5.10 says what? We're saved by his, does anyone know? Life. Justified by his death. Saved by his, what does it mean to be saved by his life? Well, that word life is zoe. John 10.10. 10. Here's Jesus. I came that you might have like abundant life. You might really live. And that word in John 10 is zoe. It's not bios, like biological life. You have biological life. I can't, here's Jesus. I came to give you a life you don't have. Well, where can I get a life I don't have? From me, says Jesus, because now I, in my resurrected life, will through the power of the Holy Spirit indwell you. And so you now, if you're here tonight and you are in Christ, do you know what that means? Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then you have nothing less than the DNA within you of the resurrected Jesus. All the hope mercy, wisdom, power, healing capacity, life of nothing less than Christ himself lives in you, Colossians 1.26. Christ in you, <clears throat> the hope of glory. You have everything you need to live the life for which you're created. And, and so, 
she heard that directly from Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I ascend to my God. She said, he said, I ascend to my God and your God. To my father and your father. Family. Why does this matter? Well, often this kind of Easter story is articulated as, wow, you know, it's sure good news. Jesus died, and so someday when you die, you get to go to heaven just like Jesus did. I would say what is far more important is that uh, Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, is alive now, where? In you. So that you have entered into life for the ages, and now you're invited as a Christ follower to fulfill that calling for which you remained on the earth. God could have beamed you up, but you're still here. Why? Because you're made to be salt and light in a world of decay and darkness. So go forth in Jesus' name, appropriating all that Christ is in you, and change the world. Mary did, and that's what it means to be a disciple. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Mary. In a, in a world of contract language, she embodies covenant fidelity. In a world of uh, conditional love, she shows us faithfulness. She shows us following. And Father, would we, even in these moments, as an act of worship, listen for your voice so that we might understand that we have received much. May we, may we commit ourselves to walking in your story unconditionally, that we, we too, with Mary, might give much. And may you teach us to live out from the confidence that eternal life has begun for us and therefore we didn't fear death and we can shoot the moon. We can be people of hope and generosity today because of what you've done. Guide us into these realities, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.